It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 21. This was the second half of my conversation with listener Chris Doland, where we presented two different perspectives and points of view on the case. I thought it was a great discussion. As I mentioned last week, it really kind of opened my eyes and it actually helped me have a little better, clearer look at the case. I think it's always a great idea to get other people's perspectives and not be in a bubble uh, and and only only discuss the case with people that agree with you. Uh, when you get challenged a little bit, I think it leads you to opening your eyes to some things you might have missed. So. It was a great discussion. We got a lot of questions from you guys. I am back from all of my travels, and I swear to God, I'm not getting on another airplane for at least two months after my weekend of travels. But I'm I'm now here in the studio uh, with Zach and Mike and a list of your questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. All right, we're jumping into these questions. Our first one's from Josie. I have more of a comment. I wanted to thank you both, Bob and Chris Dolan, for presenting more or less opposing sides and doing it in a clear way. It has actually helped me to understand the case more. Great job. Two very good episodes. Now I need to listen to last week's follow-up. I skipped ahead. Thanks, Josie. As, as, like I said in the intro, it was really, I think I said last week, there were, there were certainly some people that wanted more meat and potatoes episode, but I really think as, as part of my investigative process, which is what I'm sharing with you guys week by week, I think it's really advantageous to to sometimes take a step back, you know, don't lose the forest for the trees to 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 take a step back, look at a broader view, hear some other perspectives and and I I hope it came through. I feel like you can hear it in that discussion where both Chris and I uh throughout the conversation were were really had our eyes open to um some new perspectives, thoughts and ideas uh as we broke down the case together. So I'm glad you liked it. I definitely enjoyed it and I appreciate Chris coming on. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed being a fly on the wall for that conversation because I feel like I feel like we all got a lot out of that. Chris really brought a lot to the table from the opposing view. Mm-hmm. And it was it was really nice to hear. Lauren says, who were you able to talk to in Houston? Quite a few people. I got a couple of, I got some leads, but then I actually spoke to, I, I had a long conversation with Juan Mendiola and his wife. Um, went in, I, th- I think I recorded with them for almost two hours. Uh, so we'll be hearing some of that. Got some new information there. Uh, I spoke with um, Craig Peters, got some new information there. We'll be hearing about, you'll probably hear from him this week in this week's episode. Uh, I spoke with all of the Sullivans. I spoke with, uh, actually, I did not speak with Ruby. Uh, I spoke with Nina and Cena Sullivan. Both of them, it was, it was kind of, I spent a lot of the week chasing them down, like trying to figure out where, going, figure out which house was theirs and which phone numbers and, you know, talking to family members to get connected with them. And they both called me back within an hour of each other, both while I was driving, uh, to the airport. So I did, I didn't have, I wasn't able to record with them, but they have agreed to, do a recorded interview with me. But just in our conversations, there were some definitely some big insights that came from those conversations. And that that's coming up too. Also, I had Juan let me know that he thinks that there are, in fact, still some of Catalina's friends that she used to hang out with back in the day that still volunteer at the same church. He gave me the address and um, I went there and talked to the receptionist, gave her my card. And she's, she plans to talk to some of the older members of the church and see if she can track down anybody that knew Catalina and have them call me again. And, and because of some of the stuff Juan told me, I'm really very interested to see what these people have to say. So hopefully some of them will get back with me. And also Juan's, um, wife was going to dig out. She said somewhere she still has, uh, Catalina's old kind of Rolodex phone book with phone numbers. So she was going to, if she could find it, she was going to dig through there and, uh, try to find some of those names for me too. So. Uh, it was, it was, it was a productive trip for, you know, it was a, I was, you know, two days flying and two days on the ground working. It was, got quite a bit done, did a lot of driving over those, over those couple of days. Uh, and it was a definitely a worthwhile trip. One of the things we talked about last week in the follow up was the, the video you took of being outside the apartment. Mm-hmm. And I know we put you on the clock last time about if there was a pipe there. Did you ever, did you ever see if there was any pipe I there? I did anything? not make it back. Okay. I didn't have time. I got, so what I, most of my day that next day was spent trying to track down the Sullivans. And it was like every address that I had for them that that looked like it was a legitimate address, they were all in completely opposite ends of town. So it was like I would drive an hour this way and talk to someone and it'd be the wrong spot, then an hour back that way and then talk to someone who it, it's, you know, I talked to their um, Nina and Cena's niece. Um, and then, you know, she was going to talk to, leave a message. It was, just, it was just a lot of running around that ate up my time and I never did end up making it back to the apartment complex. Chris says, where are you in your thinking after the last two weeks with time to reflect and dive back into the evidence? I'm just getting back into the evidence. So it's been an interesting two weeks, but the the conversation with Chris was very helpful. And then what added to that was the conversations that I had on the ground in Houston with, with again, uh, Juan and Nina and Cena and Craig and got some new information from them. To be honest with you, I haven't processed it all yet. We were talking a little bit about some of it off the air before we came in, just trying to figure out what exactly things mean. I, I, I can't really, I can't really say because I, I need to take the time to sit down and process. And a lot of times for me, my processing time is writing. So this week's episode, I'm writing about Detective Swainson. That's going to tie in with, uh, with Craig Peters and we'll start, start to piece things together. I definitely, I, I, I got on the plane to come home from Houston with the feeling that, that Jennifer, 
the Jennifer definitely was framed for this. I know it's, and I'll also say that, you know, I, I still, I don't know, you know, we lost the person, the, um, the position of, of being able to say that Jennifer couldn't have done this because of the timing issue. So I, you know, as, as of now, I'm in a position where I think that she was framed, but that also, you know, doesn't always mean that someone is innocent, you know, completely innocent. I, I, I still a hundred percent believe the cops got this wrong. It didn't happen the way they said it happened. I lean towards still pretty heavily that Jennifer really has no knowledge of the crime, but definitely looking at at a lot of different angles, um, you know, I, things that I, we just need some time to settle in with some of this new information and then uh, and then figure out what it means. Well, that's a pretty big speculation. I'm I'm excited to hear you moving forward with this, because I think if the way it sounds, if you're if you're believing that after your trip, I'm excited to hear what you came up with, because right now I'm still very confused on everything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's there's so many moving parts. It's crazy. Yeah, it, you know, and for a couple of different reasons, and by framed, I mean, there's a couple of elements here, right? So I think that she was A, framed, meaning, you know, or you could say thrown under the bus by Eva. I think that she was a scapegoat from Eva, you know, or that Eva used her as a scapegoat. Uh, and so she was kind of framed in that way. And then I also think that Detective Swainson and Detective Allen very much manipulated uh, the evidence and the investigation and the case file in order to try to get that guilty verdict against Jennifer. And, and so with those two things together, I, th- I think both of the, I'm very confident in saying both of those two things are true. And I also think that those can be true and, and she could have still been involved with it. Um, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pointing that out because I, I'm trying to be very honest and transparent. That's the, that, that is the truth. But I also want to say that I, I, I don't see that. I think that, I think we have to go through a lot of mental gymnastics for all of this to be true and for Jennifer to have any involvement in in this crime whatsoever. I just, at this point, I don't think she did, but I'm still open to the fact that she may have. And there are certainly some things in the case that are some of the new information too, that it's like, as soon as you start to feel like you get things figured out, something else comes in and confuses it again. Kim says, have we got any way of finding out who Tommy is? Maybe an old boss or coworker from where Eva worked? I don't know. I think that information would have to come from, um, from Eva, who is not, I was not able to track her down while I was in, uh, in Texas. I'm definitely, I'm just, at this point, I'm just going to send her a message. I, I have ways to reach out to her and uh, I, I don't have any confidence that she's going to talk to me, but it'd be nice if she would. And I also want to mention one more thing from the last question. I didn't, I didn't find this person in Texas. I actually was able to contact them thanks to some help of a listener prior to going to Texas, but I did get a hold of Trenton Roach, who was one of the paramedics that treated Catalina that day. And, uh, unfortunately he has no memory. Uh, he said, he said, he, I mean, I, everything I gave him like the details, it, you know, that she was found behind the door, you know, she they thought that she was hit on the head. There was a lot of blood turned out it was stabbed. It was a murder. And he was like, he's a very nice guy, but he's like, I'm sorry, sir. I just, that run doesn't even ring a bell. Yeah. I was afraid of that. Just, I mean, I know you said that last or two weeks ago that that you m- hope that he would have something, but I was afraid that there would be nothing there. Mm-hmm. Just when you see so much of that. Right. I mean, obviously I have a different, I have a different background, but me tattooing, that's people coming to me with a tattoo that they, you know, they got years ago. I'm like, I don't, I can't remember everything I did. So. Right. Luis says, do we think it's possible that the prints on the patio door were actually the prints that can be seen just under the door handle on the inside of the front door? It seems a bit suspicious that there are no photos of the patio door prints, and they happen to be the only prints that apparently belong to Jen. I don't know. I mean, 
I'm trying to distinguish what conversations I've had on this podcast already and what conversations I've had with other people, whether we've talked about this, but more and more, and I want to dig into it to make sure I'm not confident that I have everything right. But I'll just, I'll just say this about the prints that there's a lot of things suspicious about those fingerprints. The biggest one is that they didn't take a photo of it. And, and it's easy to explain that away and, oh, they, you know, they were in a hurry or they didn't do good. That's standard. I've checked with, with detectives that I know multiples in the last couple of weeks asking about this. And that is standard procedure. Always, not sometimes, not when it works out. Always, when you dust for a fingerprint, and then when you do that, the way the fingerprints work is the dust attaches to the oils in the skin, and you can see with the naked eye that there is a fingerprint there. That's how you know then to put the tape on it and pull the lift off of the print. And you always, 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 always photograph that print. You photograph it before you tape it. Typically, from what I understand, they'll put a scale next to it, like the little kind of L-shaped ruler. They'll put the ruler next to it, take photos with that, so you have an idea of the scale, and you can see where it came from. You can see that, and, and we have that with the prints that are on the front door. We have a print, you can see prints on the wall. They can see where they thought they had a print on the on the kitchen drawer, the one that they thought was in, in blood, and there's just nothing, not a single print of it. I know I've said, I think I even said in this episode that I that I think that. Um, you know, the, the print doesn't really bother me. I still maintain that. I mean, and, I, and when I say this, because it, it doesn't incriminate her. You could you could say a print on the patio of Jennifer's got put there because she jumped the patio fence and went in and, and participated in the murder. And you can also say that the print got there because she jumped the fence like she said she did to go look inside the apartment. And you can't disprove either one. And either of them are reasonable. So, it, you know, it's. It's one of those things where it's like, well, I guess we'll find out how that print got there once we've solved the case because it's one, it's one or the other, whether she was involved in it or not. It, and, and I really hate to lean into any kind of like really ridiculous conspiracies, but that was the biggest red flag for me with that print as I continue to look into it is why are there no pictures? Add to that, and this is the part I really want to dig into before I expound on it too much, is the fact that if I understood the trial testimony of Jim Schraub properly, he wasn't given that print to test against Jennifer until days before the trial, over uh, almost a year after the murder. And, I, and that's part I, I do have to you know, check his trial testimony. It's on our website. I'm going to review it, too. Um, so don't just take my word for it. But my understanding was in the, in the final hours, final days before trial, all of a sudden they're like, oh, here's a fingerprint we forgot to give you before. And sure enough, it's Jennifer's. And then they say where that fingerprint was found, but we have no evidence of that. We have no pictures of it. We have no proof that it came from there. So it, it's certainly enough, you know, and there are certainly people that will be like, oh, you're just trying to conspiracy theory. I'm not saying this is what happened, but there's enough there to question that fingerprint. If I had to give a theory, I don't think that. So if there was a conspiracy regarding the fingerprint and, 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 and you tell me, I, I got to give you what is my theory as to how it got there or what happened. I would say this. I don't think that Jim Schraub uh, misidentified it. I don't think there was that, that that's what happened. I would say the most likely theory, the easiest way for a cop to make this happen that fits with what we know would be to pull Jennifer's fingerprint off something else. So meaning they sit down and have a meeting with her and she, you know, holds on to a coffee cup or a drinking glass or whatever. And then after after they leave. 
they pull a tape lift off of that, right? And then take that tape lift and take it over to the fingerprint lab and take it to Jim Schraub and say, oh yeah, here's the one, here's a print that we pulled off of the patio door. Can you see whose this is? And oh, look, it's Jennifer's. Of course it was Jennifer's. You just took it from a cup that Jennifer touched. I'm not saying that's what happened, but what I'm trying to do is figure out like, what could this mean? We have no proof that it was found from the scene. It was not submitted with the other prints at the beginning of, of the case when they were when they were originally doing the forensic evidence. It was brought in at the final hour. It's three fingers, which look at if you're, you know, grab a glass or something like that. You know, you can have three fingers like that on something. So, yeah, I think that I think if if there was a conspiracy could just be legit. But if there was some kind of conspiracy there. I think that it would have been something like that. I don't think that it was what, what the listener here is suggesting is that that it was actually Jennifer's print was on the front door and that they then said it was from the patio. I don't think that's the case. They, those were very specifically talked about. Oh, I think if it was on the front door, they would have said it was on the front door because that implicates her way worse than the patio oh, yeah. door. Right so there. if it was the front door, I think they would have said that. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, that just it starts to bring in more people into the into the into the problem, too. But it just. Yeah, I, they, they very specifically, Shroud talked about those prints that they were unidentifiable. That was where we had the kind of the issues with him, right? Where that that's kind of his M.O. when it comes to conspiracy. And his case was that he would not tell people when he made identifications if it was going to hurt the case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there was a conspiracy there, I think it would be that, oh, well, there is a print there and it matches someone else other than Jennifer. We don't want to muddy the water. So say that it was unusable. Not saying that happened, but that's that's that could be a scenario there. But I accepted the prints for a long time, and now the more I'm looking at these circumstances together, there's I definitely feel like there's something shady with those prints. And I'll point out and do your own due diligence. I'm sure we've got some in the fan page, but if you know anybody, ask around. Don't take my word for it. Ask some detectives. If you know any cops or detectives, ask them what the procedure is for collecting fingerprints. And I guarantee you 100% of them will tell you that you dust when you find the print, you take the pictures of the print, and then you pull the tape lift. So is there any evidence anywhere that suggests they tested that door early, that they did print that door at all early? No. Okay. Nope. Yeah, I, th- it's, I think it's written into Verbitsky's report uh, that he pulled. I think it is. His report, remember, was super short for mm-hmm. being the CSI in the case. I have to go, and these are the things I need to go back and look into. But again, all those reports were typed up after the fact. So... If a cop is willing to lie and say that they found this print in a place where they didn't actually find it, if they're willing to do that, then it's certainly not out of the question that they would also edit the report to say that they took it. You know, they would be smart enough to cover those tracks. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Juan says, where is Youngster when he sees the Red Rock and House in interaction with Jen? Was he inside the patio door? Can you see them from inside when they are by Catalina's front door? If the voice happened after Red Rock and Housen left, then youngsters should have seen the murderer leave. This would be the window of opportunity before Eva came back with help. And then Danny writes, How did youngsters see anything from the window? Is it not more likely that Jen told him about the interaction with Red Rock and Housen while they were alone in Eva's apartment? I don't know. Well, we don't know if they were ever alone in Eva's apartment. You have KD said that Jennifer and youngster went into a back room and talked in the apartment, but the other witnesses from outside didn't confirm that remember they said that eva youngster and katie were in the apartment youngster and katie came out then eva came out then jennifer came from walking you know walk from around the corner so it's hard to know if they're if that ever even happened if, if, if her and katie and youngster were actually in the apartment alone together or if maybe that happened later that night but uh, to answer the first question yeah you could you could see someone standing at the foot of those stairs at the, at the bottom of the stairs on that sidewalk area, you could see that from the patio. If you go to the video that I took on, on our, in our Facebook group, I have to verify this, but I, but I stood on that sidewalk to look up and I could, if you remember that vi- when I was doing the live video, anybody who watched it, I was saying like, I got to be careful what I say down here because that patio door is open and there's people in there. Well, what the, re, re, when the, these questions came up, what I remembered was I was standing right where Red Rock and Housen were standing. When I looked up and saw that the patio door was open, which means, yes, you could stand in that living room and look through that patio door and see down there. The angles work. Uh, And then there's also the window, which would be to the left of that, that gives you another angle on it. So they could have seen from there. To Danny's point, they say that um, maybe, you know, it's more likely that that Jennifer just told him about it. I don't think so. And that just comes from just a basic statement analysis. Right. And, And again, we always come back to, well, why you're picking this is true and this is false out of the statement. It's not it's 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 not biased like someone might think. We're just looking at, you know, again, the, where do things fall apart and what doesn't line up? And and when we're looking at observations, you you didn't if Jennifer told youngster, oh, Red Rock and his buddy on a bike were there, then his statement to the police would be that oh yeah, then I saw Red Rock and this guy on a bike were there. He doesn't do that. He, he, he's, he's very, look at the way he describes who we know to be Red Rock. He, he talks about, I saw a guy that was dressed like this and was wearing this and had, uh, you know, the, the bad lip and the other guy was wearing a muscle shirt. He was on a bike. Now, mind you, he's, when he's talking about that, he's saying that this happened while all the screaming's happening outside. And so when we're, when we're looking, doing the statement analysis, it's like, well, when they went outside, first of all, that we've we've already discussed ad nauseum that there's plenty of reason to believe there never was any screaming outside, and Katie and Youngster never followed Eva out there. So that's that's thing one. But also, like when Katie's saying no one's outside when they have those conversations, and then Eva's saying that it's just her and the boys were out there, and Jennifer comes as she's leaving, and then and then Youngster says no, Nina, Cena. Uh, or, or Ruby Sullivan and these two guys were all out there during the screaming. Well, we know that's not true because we have Nina, Cena, and Ruby Sullivan statements, and we know that they didn't come by till later. They weren't there. So then for me, I start asking, well, how does he know that Red Rock and Housen was there? And the only explanation I can come up with in doing that statement analysis is he saw them because he doesn't say their names. 
He describes them. I saw that he saw Jen was standing outside. So, so you got to remember the whole scenario he's describing didn't happen. You know, they 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 weren't all down there screaming, hearing the fake voice with Ruby and Red Rock, and that that didn't happen. But what it tells us is he did see those two together. He saw the he saw Housen on his bike. He described him. He saw Red Rock standing there. He could so. The way it reads to me is he's trying to piece together a narrative. He's trying to piece together a false narrative with the bits of truth that he has, right? So it is another indication that Youngster youngster doesn't know when the screaming was supposed to have happened. It's another indication that's a made-up story. He knows that, in my opinion, that at some point he looked out and he saw Jennifer and he saw uh, uh, th- these two guys out there who we know to be Red Rock and Housen. And so he's trying to blend. And at some point when he comes out, he sees Ruby Sullivan out there, who at that point, Red Rock and Housen weren't there. Uh, so he's trying to piece these together into a narrative. But to, to the short version of this is, no, I don't think Jennifer said, tell the police uh, that you saw me talking to a tall, thin man in a windbreaker with a with a with a um, some sort of issue with his lip. Uh, and, uh, and another guy wearing a, a, a tank top on a bicycle who would ball, you know, all these things. I don't think that that's what happened. I think he, I think to me that reads as though he's describing something he actually saw. And that was kind of the end of my conversation with Chris. That's one of the things when I come back and say, I don't think Jennifer had anything to do with this. It's because of things like this. This is someone's going to have to explain to me how, if Katie and youngster aren't involved, if you're one of the people that don't believe they're involved. And the, and that the, you know, their descriptions in two separate rooms by two separate interviewers are exactly identical as far as where they were sleeping, how they woke up and when they walked out. And the fact that this indicates that youngster was awake after the screaming, after the murder, after Eva had come back, after that, that he looked out and saw who we know to be Red Rock and Housen. He described them exactly. And if that's true, if I'm right, and there's a big if there, if I'm right, and he did look out that window and see Red Rock and House and, and Jennifer out there at some point, then that would say to me that Jennifer didn't do it. She was outside and had that conversation with them after the murder. My biggest holdup with that is the fact that, you know, he says he sees the Red Rock and House and interaction with Jen, but how does he know Jen's out there? Because you right. can't see Jen. There's no way you could see Jen. If Jen's right. where she says she is. There's no way you could see Jen from upstairs. Sure, but how's, here's a scenario for you, a, a hypothetical, right? So tell me if you can if if this could make sense to you. Youngster and Katie are asleep in the room, just like they say they are. They hear screaming, and then they hear Eva open the door. So they get up, just like they say they do. They go outside and they see Eva at the front door, and Eva's going out. Now my belief is they didn't follow her out. My belief is when she sees them, that her her telling them. They can't be outside because of the traffic outside most likely happened then, like told them not to go outside. So Eva goes down and screams, yells, does whatever she's going to do, and then goes to run to the office. Youngster and Katie are looking from the window. Now, remember in, in Jennifer's first statement, and let's not forget Eva's first statement, where she said that as she left to go to the to the manager's office, Again, don't forget this. Her first statement, she says she thought she saw Jennifer walking up to the scene as she was leaving. So let's say that happens, right? So they're looking out the window and they see, they watch and see Jennifer walk down the sidewalk right in front of them, walk up to the front door 
And then right after that, then they see Red Rock and Housen come out. So they're not actually seeing them interact together, but they know Jennifer's there, there, there. And then they leave and see Jennifer come back out. Okay. Okay. I can see how that would work. But that that was my only, that was my big holdup was saying that they saw them talking to Jennifer because you can't see them. You right. know what I mean? Like you could see Red Rock and Housen, but you definitely can't see Jennifer. Right. Which still leads me to believe like if it's that quick, how did they not see Eva? I've, well, as long as we're doing this, I guess I have, I have thoughts on that too. I don't think Eva ran straight to the office. Okay. I thought a lot about that. And, and I, I thought, you know, because it is, the angles work out and the timing could work out that Eva could, you know, because Eva would be, I know people on Patreon can see the video, but Zach, showing Zach. So Eva takes off and goes to the office this way. Mm-hmm. Red Rock and Housen come from Wanda's this way. They could easily miss each other. Okay. How long was Eva in the office? She does say it took her a few minutes to get them off their asses to get up and make a call, right? So it's possible that it just the timing was just just perfect, perfect just yeah. perfect. But it's also possible. So if, so if we look at if you look at it through a lens, a hypothetical lens, that Eva is actually involved in this crime. And the whole going to the manager's office to get help is a ruse, and she's trying to collect herself. Is it impossible to think that she might have like went around the corner and sat there and like are and kind of gathered her thoughts for a minute and thought about what she was gonna do, what she was gonna do and whether she wanted to go in or not and and think about what she's gonna say before she goes in? You know, it, maybe she didn't just run straight in and grab him. We don't know. There's 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 possibilities there, but it is also physically possible that it could have happened just the way she said that happened and they still would have missed each other. But man, it would have been it would have been like the perfect storm of timing. Which is again is always possible, but it would have had to been like right as she's crossing the street, Red Rock and Housen come from around the sidewalk. They get there. The interaction with Jennifer takes thirty seconds while they're she's in the office for thirty seconds. They go back, and then ten seconds later, that's when they come out and start heading that way. Yeah, it'd been really, really tight. It's it's obviously like you said, it's not impossible, but it'd been really tight. Yeah, but yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of a lot of different scenarios there, but I I just think that. The the big thing for me that I pulled out of that of youngster statement, the reason I said that I think he saw obviously saw the Red Rock and Housen uh, interaction, is because of the way he's describing the two men. Tells me that he did see those two guys together on the bike, and I don't think that they were together and on the bike when they came back later. Like in the crime scene video, I think we see Red Rock, but we don't see Housen, and we see the the police. Remember, right in those first moments, supposedly we're looking for Mike Housen. They're trying to find him. Uh, he was he wasn't around. So you know the only you know, when they were, and they were part of a big crowd as opposed to uh, and somebody I think they says they saw the black guy from the front of the apartment complex with a white guy. I think that was Red Rock because Red Rock lived in the front of the apartment complex. But yeah, so I think the only time that they rolled right up there to the unit, right there where you could you could see from that window together, was when they were talking to Jennifer. And since he can describe them, that means, in my opinion, he likely saw them. And I don't think he was awake until after the murder. So that would mean. You know, ipso facto that he saw that that the interaction between Red Rock and Jennifer happened after the murder, but before the managers came back. Aaron wants to know if the jewelry box was found on the kitchen counter or somewhere else in the kitchen. We do not have that information and it wasn't photographed. So we're going to do with that what you want. But all we have is Alan's report in in a scene summary that says it was there. Doesn't say specifically where and, of course, never took a picture of it. Lynn says, do you think Garza saw Eva on the steps and that her actions are related to her Tommy Page? I don't know. I mean, I don't think his statement's super reliable or you'd like to say, yeah, it would fit into a nice little package, right? Because Eva says Tommy Page is her at 744. 
And at 745, Garza drives by and he sees the girl on that, those steps. It could be, but I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how we know that. And I don't think that he's capable of giving any more information on it because as you also would have saw in the video, like it was too far away and he was moving too fast and didn't know that he needed to have details. That's key. Like it's the same reason people don't know times. I didn't know I was supposed to be keeping track of time. He didn't know that there was a murder going to happen there that morning. He just drove by and saw there was a girl there. And then later on was, you know, for all we know, he saw somebody, it was, it was a different set of steps. Oh, that could be, that very well could be. And, and the, the timeline to say, oh yeah, it was 745. That's, that's always questionable to me. When you have no point of reference to put a time on, to just pull a time out. Well, it's different in his police statement and his trial testimony, but there was something like he got off work and then he went home from work and waited till the kids left for school. And then he went to go to 7-Eleven. He knows about when the kids went to, there's some, you know, but it's certainly not going to be an exact time. I think the most relevant information that we get from him is, as, as I've said many times, he's the only witness we have where a detective wrote down what he said, and then later we get to hear what he actually said. That's that's the most relevant part of Garza, in my opinion. Lynn also says, thanks for the discussion. I now think Eva and or Jen have knowledge of the crime, but possibly neither was a participant. If they are still in fear today of the murderer, that seems to rule out youngster Red Rock and KD. What are your thoughts? I mean, I, I guess I would, I disagree. I think it's got to be one or the other. I mean, certainly, I mean, I respect that opinion, but I, I don't, I cannot see a scenario where Jennifer and Eva were involved in this together. There's no, I just don't see any way that 25 years later, that information hasn't come out. And that's not to mention the fact that, you know, as we, you know, these are all arguments we've had before, but you know, you don't point the police towards your accomplice when neither of you were suspects at the time. There's just a whole lot of reasons why I don't think the two of them uh, would be involved in it together. I think it could be one or the other, but not both. Chris says, I'm anxious to hear any updates on the call to police made by Truesdale the night before the murder. I don't think it happened. So here's something. I guess I was going to put that into a main episode, but I guess we'll talk about it now. Uh, Filed a FOIL request. Uh, Houston PD was great. Their records division was great. They searched into it and said there was no record of anyone ever calling the police that night. So that's all I have. I don't know what that means. I don't know if did they not take a record of it or did Keith make the, you know, because we have two sources, but the one source heard it from Keith. So really we have one source. We have Keith Truesdale saying that that happened. My opinion, I I, I think he made it up. I, th- I think he made it up after the fact. I, I, don't, I don't know what, any other explanation to how you could call the police and then them not have a record of you ever calling the police. Well, I mean, I think we've seen it before. It's rare, but, you know, that whole separation of days right pre-midnight post-midnight crap mm-hmm. i mean in paperwork that can get a little fuzzy right yeah we had that with ed eight's case remember it got super confusing that's right yeah um because the the days of the week that yeah that could be it could yeah it could just be a mistake there could be something else going on there but it doesn't seem like it from other records i got from them they even if there's no narrative there's no full report we still have the dispatch, like you know, when I looked up Eva's case, there's not a whole lot of information there, but at least says yes, someone you know, this happened on this date. Here's a report, but yeah. So it, all I can tell you for sure is that the police have no record of that call ever happening. And in Keith's statement, he says that he called and they never showed up, which you know maybe that's why. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but de- definitely there's no nothing in the police files. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Our last question is from Kimberly. I could be wrong because things are so confusing this season, but are we disregarding Jim Clemente's profile? Is the belief now that it was two men who committed this murder? I think a bunch of rabbit holes have been gone down, and now we can't see the forest for the trees. Also, please don't crucify me for this, but I think there has been one fault in this investigation. While the cops seem to have been investigating this under the assumption of Jennifer's guilt and making evidence fit that narrative, I think that Bob has been doing the exact same, but making the evidence fit the narrative of her innocence. In other seasons, Bob was generally reticent about the convicted's guilt or innocence until the end. However, out the gate, he has seemed to be cited on her innocence. I think it may have added bias to the investigation, which is unfair to all involved. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on my thoughts. Uh, for starters, the I'm not disregarding the profile at all. You know, I, I think that the, the I mean the profile is just a tool, right? It doesn't mean that it, that's exactly what happened. But I, I I still lean into it. I think that I do think this was a personal cause homicide. I do think that that the the robbery was staged had nothing to do with with a robbery, and I think it was somebody who you know what the profile was somebody what's it maybe in their twenties twenties early thirties you know with a conflict with uh, with Catalina, possibly a woman. I think all that still all that still plays, but I'm not hung up on that either. Uh, as even Jim would tell you, it's just a profile. As far as the bias investigation, I mean, I I appreciate the the the, the sentiment and the thought. I'm always happy to answer it, but it I will tell you my thought on your thoughts are that's frustrating for me. If I'm going to be completely honest, when I when when I hear that, if if someone can point me to a specific instance of me trying to um. I don't know, manipulate the evidence, but try to present things in a way that makes Jen Jen look innocent. I, I just haven't been doing that. I don't do that. I've never done that. I'm taking every single element of the case. And if you listen back through these, what you heard, you heard me saying that I 100% think Jen is innocent when the evidence, nothing I made up, the documented evidence said that we had a 915 time of death. And that in that case, there was no possible time. It has nothing to do with bias. That's just what the evidence says. Honestly, from my perspective, it seems like it's the exact opposite true is true a lot of times. Or what I, and this is just my feelings on it. Sometimes is I feel like s- that, that sometimes certain listeners get made up in their mind what they think happened, and then they don't like when I'm presenting evidence that contradicts that. And so the the the, the human. The human feeling on that is, oh, well, he's biased and he's spinning things his way rather than consider the fact that maybe that maybe you were wrong about something. I'm not and I'm not talking about you specifically, Kimberly, or anybody in particular, but I'm just I'm just trying to be very open and transparent with with my feelings when I get when I hear these things, because, I mean, it, it, again, listen back. You hear me adjust and change my opinion with new information. It was, you know, the. Even even the fact that it was the nine fifteen time of death, which by the way would be super convenient. Okay, if I was trying to bias evidence to make Jennifer look innocent, then I would have never gone digging. I would have never looked for, and I certainly never would have presented the fact 
that the time of, that the call wasn't made till 944. That would have been very, very easy to do. That was, that's what, that was the information I had. But through conversations with listeners like Chris, who had a different perspective in our conversations, I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to hear him out with an open mind and maybe he's right. Maybe there is something wrong here. And, you know, another one I've named a few times, listener Danny Cash is another one has a, you know, an opposite perspective of me, but we, we have good conversations and, and bounce ideas off each other. And it causes me to think, and it got me to question that time of death. And then it led to finding evidence that, that I don't think anybody, even, even the lawyers in the case have never found before, uh, that, that tells us that the 911 call didn't happen until 944, which then opens the window of opportunity back up to where Jennifer could be guilty. Now, if you think that I did that out of some bias to try to make Jennifer look innocent, you got to think twice about that. I, I am going through the evidence in the same way I do every single time. I call it like it is. I do the I do my statement analysis the same way. I bring in experts like Jim to do cases like this the same way every time. And I will always tell you what I actually feel. And when I when I feel like the you know, so back up. You can't tell me, anybody can't tell me that they can look at Jennifer's confession and then look at the actual crime scene analysis when we know the things that actually happened on that crime scene and tell me that she has demonstrated a single bit of guilty knowledge of the crime. She hasn't. It's made up and it's also you can't tell me that the information in that confession didn't come directly from Detective Allen. We know that it did, 100%. He says in his own words, things like the butcher knife and some of these elements came from him. So, so I have a confession that we know is false. She demonstrates no guilty knowledge of the crime whatsoever. And then when we had that stacked up, and then, and then the fact that you know, we have Eva lying, and the, you know, for some reason people keep wanting to push away from Eva and I don't know if Eva was involved in this, but I know that she lied about her alibi and that she she put a lot more effort in than anybody else to try to point fingers in other directions. Uh, and for some reason, her story was just accepted as truth along the way. But when we had all that information and then we come up with, oh, look, we found here there's a 915 time of death. That would mean Jennifer couldn't have done it. But as soon as that 915 time of death got moved back to I don't know, 945, 935, somewhere there, well, now where am I at now? I lean towards the fact that I think that that Jennifer probably wasn't involved for all the reasons we've discussed over these last 21 episodes, but I also still have some concerns and some questions about things. So I'm not I'm not prepared to say Jennifer Jeffley is innocent. But if you want to know how I feel right now, I feel like that's the most likely scenario. And I'm going to it doesn't do me any good, it doesn't do Jennifer any good, it doesn't do Catalina, Juan Mendiola or anyone else out there any good for me to bend the truth. I mean, I don't know what I would have to gain by lying to you and telling you that she's innocent. Because you know what will happen if I do that? It doesn't matter if I say on a podcast that Jennifer's innocent. If she's not innocent and there's not actually evidence to support that, then she'll never get out of prison. And all we'll have to do is just, you know, we, we have cases stacked up that are now being worked on by the Innocence Project, the Conviction Integrity Units. We have, we have cases where convictions have been overturned and an Ed's case put back in. We want results. We've got Jamie Snow, our season seven case, uh, just had a hearing and now he's working with the exoneration project and as another hearing coming up soon to, for some new DNA testing. We want to see movement on these cases and we don't get that by me just lying and making shit up. So I, I will tell you that regardless of the way you might think, and there's no way for me, right? You can't prove a negative. There's no way for me to prove to you that I don't have this bias that you think that I have. All I can tell you is that's not the case. All I want to find is the truth. And when I'm presenting the evidence to you, I'm presenting it to you in the way that I feel 
I, first of all, I give it all to you. I put it on the website for you to look, look for yourself. But, but my analysis is my true analysis of the facts. And that's all that I'm ever going to give you. So what I would ask for is, is I will always continue to check myself and do things like have Krista, have someone who disagrees with me on the show and, and have those conversations to, to check myself. I would ask anybody who's looking at this and thinks that I'm going through this in a biased way to try to do the same. To ask yourself if you feel that I'm biased because I've, because you can point to something specific that, that I misled you on or lied about or, or twisted words on. Is that why you think I'm biased or do you think I'm biased because what I just presented contradicts what you believe happened? And if that's the case, that's human. It's human nature that that happens all the time. It certainly obviously can have it does happen to me in time. That's why I take these times to do a gut check by talk, making sure I'm speaking with people who disagree with me. Uh, but I appreciate the question. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to kind of state my case there. And again, if at the end of the day you hear that and you still think that I'm just biased, then I, there's nothing I can do about that. Hopefully at some point we just we, we find the truth together one way or another. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.